0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we're talking about the Ninth Commandment. And the Ninth Commandment is... You shall not bear false witness, shall not lie. But before we actually go to the commandment, I want us to go to the very beginning of the Bible, and we're going to go to Genesis 3, and we're going to look at the first lie. Who told the first lie? (laughs) The serpent. Satan. Yeah. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Here we go. Is everybody there? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves Loin cloths. All right. The snake is the devil. What does the Bible say about the devil? First Peter 5, 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, the Hebrew word Satan, it's a Hebrew word, Satan means adversary, the word devil means slanderer. Okay, so he's, a, he's, a, he's the devil, he's the slanderer, he's the enemy, he's a lion. In Revelation twelve nine, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth And his angels were thrown down with him. There he's called the deceiver of the whole world. Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. In John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies lies. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What does the devil do to unbelievers? 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, "...finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." There's a lot of scriptures there about the devil. He's a liar. He's a schemer. He's a deceiver. And from the very beginning, he lies to Eve. He's got four tactics here right from the very beginning. So let's look at the four tactics that Satan tempted Eve with, and these are alive and well today. So here's tactic number one, the very first thing he does. He questions Eve. God's authoritative word. What are the very first words to come out of Satan's mouth in the entire Bible? Verse 1, he said to the woman, did God actually say? Did God really say that? Are you sure you heard God okay? Are you sure God, are you really sure God said that? Now go back up to chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. What did God say? The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Is there any question about what God's command is? Pretty clear. What does Satan come and do? Did God really, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Now notice, notice what Satan calls God. He doesn't call him the Lord God. Go back up to verse 16. I mean, chapter uh, 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Verse 16, the Lord God. Verse 18, the Lord God. All throughout chapter 2, it's the Lord God. L O R D in all caps. Yahweh, the covenant God. And then when Satan calls his name, he just calls him God. He can't bring himself to call God by his covenant name, he can't even call God. The Lord God. So Satan's tactic from the very beginning is to twist, and question, and distort God's authoritative word. He's very eloquent. He speaks as a seasoned theologian. Do you realize that the Bible? Pro- I mean, the, the, Satan probably knows the Bible better than most Christians. He quoted Scripture to Jesus, didn't he? He's been around a long time. First Timothy four ten. Says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and to the teachings of demons. Deceitful teaching. What do we know about God's word? Second Timothy three sixteen, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So the first thing that Satan does is he questions God's word. He says to Eve, are you really sure that's what God says? Now, aren't people saying that today? Did God really say that in his Bible? Are you sure you read that okay? Okay, here's the second thing that Satan does. He questions God's bountiful goodness. Basically, what does he say to Eve? He tempts Eve to think that God may not be as good and generous as he says he is. You don't know if you can really trust God. God must be holding back on you from some maximum pleasure and joy. Now, what did God say to Eve? You are free to eat of what? Every tree of the garden. There's just one you can't eat. Now, does that sound like God being stingy? Is that God being like holding back? God was very good to them and said, Listen, I've given you this whole garden for you to enjoy. Maximum enjoyment. There's just one tree. Now, what does Satan say? God's holding out on you. God doesn't want you to have fun. God doesn't want you to enjoy His creation. The terms of the covenant were very simple. God in His bountiful goodness and generosity had given them everything that they could possibly desire and yet withheld from them one tree. Okay. Thirdly, so number one, question God's word. Number two, question God's goodness. Number three, he seduces them with pride to be like God. Look at verse five. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Don't you want to be just like God? Wasn't this Satan's attempt Satan was tempting them to achieve what he tried to achieve back when he was an angel, before he became a fallen angel. Uh, most scholars believe Isaiah fourteen twelve 12-14 speaks of a prophecy about, or, 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 or a statement about um, Satan. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That was Satan's original sin, right? I'm going to be like God. So the root issue is he's tempting them with pride. I want to be like God. I want to be in charge. I want to be the center of the universe. Jonathan Edwards said this about pride. Pride is the worst viper that is in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ, the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. It's a snake ready to pounce. Charles Spurgeon called pride this in Charles Spurgeon's way. Pride is a brainless thing, the maddest thing that can exist. Okay, so number one, question God's word. Number two, question God's goodness. Number three, you can be like God. But then number four, what does he do? He tells them a bold-faced lie that there are no dire consequences to sin. What does he say in verse four? The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, is that a bold-faced lie or what? What did God say to them back in chapter two? You eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You, not may, might, you... Will die. God said it. You're going to die if you eat of this tree. What does Satan say? You're not going to die. I mean, God was just joking. There's really no consequences. I mean, what does he do? One of the most effective ways the devil tempts us as believers is to make us foolishly think there will be no consequences to our sins. What does Genesis 6 7 through 8 say? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he also will reap. For the one whom sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows... I don't think the rest of the verse is there. To righteousness will reap righteousness. I, I don't think there's a the rest of the verse on your thing. Just trust it's in the Bible. All right, so we're talking about lying. We're talking about being deceiving. But I wanted to show you that very, the very first thing was that Satan himself is the father of lies, and he comes on the scene from the very third chapter in the Bible and deceives Eve and Adam. So let's go to Exodus chapter 20, and let's just look at the commandment. It's hard to believe we're down to the ninth commandment. So Exodus 20, verse 16. Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's very clear how it's worded there. Now, let me give you the historical context of what was going on in ancient Near Eastern cultures. Okay. This is immediately talking about the law court, being in a court of law. Now, in those days, not in Israel, but in the surrounding nations their way of operating was opposite of what we have in America. What do we have in America? We are innocent until proven guilty. Okay. In those cultures, it was guilty until proven innocent. You were automatically assumed to be guilty. So there was a lot of abuse to the legal system. And so you almost had to, they almost set it up to where you really weren't going to get a fair trial. You were always going to be um, prosecuted because, there, there was just no justice. So the laws in Israel were to make a level playing field to where everybody could be put on trial before a jury of elders. So the elders in Israel, you'd go on a jury of the elders, and here's the big thing that would happen that God established in the law system of Israel that was different than all the other nations around them. Deuteronomy nineteen fifteen through 18, it's very important. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest, and the judges who were in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, again, I don't have the rest of the verse. My cut and paste and log must not have worked tonight. So anyway, you get, the, you get the idea, right? What was the way the law court was to work in Israel? If you were to be put on trial, you went before the priest and the elders, and who had to come and lay a charge against you? At least two witnesses, hopefully three. Because what happens if you just had one? Joblo Israelite just may have a vendetta against you, and he said, I saw him out there doing that. Well, it's his, he said, she said, he said, he said. There's, there's no way to weigh it. But if two come and say, yeah, we saw it, or three come, yeah, we saw it. So when you came into the court and you were to bear witness to what was a crime, it's kind of like in the old days. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Okay? They were supposed to not give false testimony against their brother, against their neighbor, so there would be equity in the courts in Israel. Okay, It's reiterated in Numbers, too. Numbers thirty-five thirty: If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. This is death penalty. If you're going to do the death penalty in Israel, you've got to make sure that you put the person to death justly. Um, you don't want to put somebody to death that, that was falsely accused. So that's why they had to have multiple witnesses. Okay, So originally, this commandment is talking about the law court in Israel. But, like we've said with every of the commandments, there's a broader principle. Okay, What's the broader principle of the ninth commandment? The broader principle behind the ninth commandment prohibits any form of of lying or falsehood. Leviticus 19, and I got a lot of scripture tonight, guys. Leviticus 19, 11 through 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Don't lie. Now, There's a lot of reasons why we shouldn't lie. But here's a very important one. One of the main reasons why we shouldn't lie is because God himself cannot lie. God himself does not lie. God himself is truthful. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Does God lie? Is there something that God cannot do? Have you thought about that? God can do everything except lie. Why can God not lie? It goes against His very character. For God to lie, it would go against who He He actually is in His essence. God, as God, cannot lie because He is truth. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then Jesus in the high priestly prayer, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, probably not this, not this Sunday, definitely, but next Sunday morning, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So God is a truth telling God, okay? Now, I've got a lot of Proverbs tonight because Proverbs talk about the tongue. What does the Bible say about a lying tongue? it has a lot to say. So I'm just going to we're just going to look at these scriptures. And we'll just let them hang out there because most of the time when you read a proverb you don't have to do a lot of exposition because it's pretty self-explanatory. Okay? Here we go. Proverbs 12:12. 12, 12. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. You know a double heart? What's a double heart? as opposed to a single heart. When the Bible talks about a single heart or a double heart, what's it talking about? A divided heart. A double heart means that you are acting one way in front of somebody and then you act another way behind their back. You're, you're hypocritical. That you're, you're telling them lies. You may be telling them a lie to their face, but then you go around and do, do something different. Or you may tell a lie behind their back. Okay? Psalm 119.29. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your laws put false ways far from me i don't want anything to do with falsehoods you want to know what god hates there's six no there's seven things god hates there are six things that the lord hates seven that are an abomination to him haughty eyes a lying tongue Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. What's and I preached on this back in the summer. Don't you guys remember that? What's what's listed almost twice in this passage of the seven things God hates? Lying. It's number two. God hates a lying tongue, and then number six, a false witness who breathes out lies. Proverbs twelve twenty two. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Okay, let's just stop right there. What's an abomination? What's the word abomination mean? We don't use that often. What's, what's an abomination? It's like where, I don't know, I feel like it's like where um, there's so much evil in you that they just like abominate you. <laughs> okay. Like that. Yeah, it's, it's when, when, when God abominates something, he, it means he utterly hates it. God hates, to the core, lying. Okay, it's an abomination to him. He hates it. Okay, Proverbs 13, 5. The righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked bring shame and disgrace. That's just some Old Testament passages. Let's look at some New Testament passages. 2 Corinthians 12, 20. Paul's writing to the church. He says, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, deceit, or conceit, and disorder. Slander and gossip. Okay, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. In your Bible, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians—I used to remember it. General Electric Power Company, if that's the way you remembered it when you were little, but maybe you remember it some way different. So, Ephesians four twenty-five through thirty-one, Paul is very clear on how we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling as Christians. How are we to live? Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. He says, "...therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil." Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, verse 25, put away falsehood, speak the truth. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Verse 31, put away slander. Okay? Now let's turn to James. Because James chapter 3 has a long section here on the power of the tongue. Hebrews, James, go over a few books. James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And James uses some very colorful graphic language to describe the tongue. James chapter 3, 2 through 10. Here we go. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, of sea and creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? can a fig tree my brother bear olives or a grapevine produce figs neither can a salt pond yield fresh water now james here employs three metaphors initially that compare the tongue to the entire body here he talks about a bit a bit of a horse okay some of you guys are horse people i know like a lot of you are horse people but i mean you, you play with horses you have horses you ride horses what does a bit do it controls the horse, but how small is the bit? Compared to a horse, okay, you've got a big old horse, the bit's like what? The bit and the bridle, are real small, okay? So small little thing, you can control a big horse, okay? So with the tiny little thing, you can control a big horse, okay? He says a ship with a rudder. Okay, think about a big huge ocean liner, big carnival cruise line. How does that thing steer? With an, with an udder. An udder. <laughs> yeah. That's really weird. A rudder, not an udder. <laughs> that's weird. I can just picture that. So a rudder. <laughs> big old ship. Tiny little rudder. Okay. Little spark creates a huge fire. So he's saying, man, with a little bit, you can control a big horse. With a little rudder, you can control a big ship. With a little spark, you can get a big fire going. With, the tongue's a little instrument, isn't it? Compared to, like, how big is your tongue compared to the rest of your body? Small. Fairly small. What's the strongest muscle in your body, besides your heart? The tongue, the tongue. Okay, and it can set things on fire. James says. Proverbs 1627. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 gives us another very unpleasant description of the tongue. The tongue is a fire. He says it is a fire. Your tongue's a fire. What does the fire do? It burns, it destroys, it lays waste to whatever's in its path. The only way to put out a fire is to what? Extinguish it. The only way to put out an uncontrollable tongue is to extinguish it. Does that mean we're to cut out our tongues? No. no, it just means we're to stop deceased speaking things out of our mouth that are false, that are evil, that are gossip, that are slander, that are going to cause a fire. He also says in verse 6, notice what else he says, not only is it a fire, it's a world of unrighteousness it's a world of unrighteousness have you ever actually been surprised at what comes out of your mouth at times is it a world of unrighteousness I mean, that's a huge it's a world of unrighteousness a big big thing okay what else does it do it says it stains back in verse 6 it stains the whole body now When you hear it stains the whole body, what are you thinking of? It personally inflicts harm on you. But what else does the Bible speak about the body? There's a debate. Is he talking about your physical... Is he talking about how the tongue corrupts you? Or is he talking about the church? You can take it both ways. A few commentators have made the decision that when James is discussing the body here, he's not referring to the physical body but to the church, the body of Christ. And basically what he's saying is your tongue can set fire through the life of a church and stain the entire church when gossip and slander goes through the life of the church. Basically, it's this whole idea of how can uncontrollable and abusive speech stain the body of Christ? Gossip. Gossip. Slander. And then notice what he says there. At the very end of verse 6, setting on fire the entire course of life. It affects your entire course of life. You're known by how you talk. And your speech affects everyone and everything around you. When someone mentions your name, what thoughts come to mind? Are you characterized by your speech? When someone mentions your name, they say, Oh, man, that guy's a complainer. Ooh, he's a gossip. She yells a lot. How are you characterized? And then notice what he says there at the end of verse 6. It's set on fire by hell. He compares it to hell. Evil speech is compared to the fires of hell. Now, the word that James uses there is Gehenna, which literally means Valley of Henan, It was a deep gorge southwest of Jerusalem where trash, garbage, and the bodies of dead animals and executed criminals were dumped. And they were continually burned. So when you look to the south of Jerusalem, to the Valley of Gehenna, you would see this continual smoke rising. It's like the garbage dump of Israel. That's what the word... And so that image there is the image of eternal fire. And so James is saying, listen, your tongue... You may think that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What's he saying? It's actually like the fires of hell if it gets out of control, your tongue. All right, It's difficult to tame. Look at verses 7 and 8. He's saying, listen, every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature, they can be tamed. You can bring dogs into your house and tame them. We've got dogs and cats, and you can even tame lions and tigers and bears, oh my, if you want to. You can tame all these types of wild animals, but, but who, can, can, who can tame the tongue? It's a restless evil. It's a restless evil there, verse 8. It's full of deadly poison. Uh, this word restless evil, this word in the original language suggests the idea of a wild animal fighting fiercely against captivity. Your tongue doesn't want to be tamed. It wants to fight against you. It's full of deadly poison. Psalm 140, verse 3, They make their tongue sharp as serpents, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Speech, like a cancer, uncontained, contaminates and poisons everything around it. The double-minded tongue. In verses 9 through 12, he says, "Look! look at! Look, think of the two things that come out of the both sides of your mouth. In one breath you can bless God and basically in the next breath you can cuss somebody out who's made in God's image. Out of your same mouth come blessing and curses. And what does he say? That ought not be. That ought not be. Matthew fifteen, eleven. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. What comes out of your mouth? What's in your heart. Later on in that passage, Matthew fifteen seventeen through 20, Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And then three more metaphors here. James ends with a spring. He says, "Verse eleven: Does a spring pour forth, forth both fresh and salt water?" So, have you ever seen a freshwater slash saltwater spring? Saltwater can't be. Two things can't exist together. That's what he's saying. You you really can't have speech that is slanderous and gossip and, and corrupting and untruthful come out of a heart that is truly of God. It's like having a salt water and a fresh water. Um, and so the question you're going to ask is is your speech a fresh flowing healthy stream that gives life and builds others up or is your is your speech bitter and salty? Like salt water. You know, you know what's really gross to eat or drink? What's like so hot salt water? I mean hot water just by itself or lukewarm water? kind of gross but like sometimes they make you gargle salt water to like get rid of stuff like you go to the ocean and you take salt water in it doesn't taste very good but when you go to like a nice cool flowing river that's got aquifers and you drink the nice spring water that that tastes good he talks about a tree here can a fig tree produce olives and can a and can a um, grapevine produce produce figs in other words Is your speech producing life? Is your speech life-giving? Is it planted in God's word? Does it bring forth fruit that encourages others? Is your speech marked by a dry withered or rotten fruit? And then he talks again about a pond. Can salt water and a pond coexist? And James very adamantly cries out in verse 10, these things ought not be. This is a construction in the Greek language that's Strong, negative, used only here in the New Testament, is one of the strongest ways to say that this double-minded, hypocritical speech should have no part in a redeemed saint's life. So, I want to talk about an issue that I think is very tempting, and that's gossip. We don't often talk about gossip, but how easy is it to give, to give into gossip? Not only do we like to give gossip but we like to receive gossip because what do we like to do? Some of us want to be in the know. Some of us want to know how other people are failing. We oftentimes share gossip and prayer requests. I've got a prayer request about Sally. You ought to know that blah, 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 blah. And it's like you have no intention of really honoring Sally, but you want to gossip about her in a prayer request. What does the Bible say about gossip? Well, let's look at the scriptures. Proverbs eleven thirteen. Whoever goes about slandering Reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Going about revealing secrets. But a trust person, trustworthy person covers things up, keeps them to themselves. Proverbs sixteen twenty eight. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. A whisperer gossiper, a whisperer. Proverbs 25:23. The north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue, angry looks. A backbiting tongue. Galatians 5 19 through21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Enmity, strife, jealousy, dissensions, divisions. Gossip just creates that. So when you're a gossip, are you being truthful in your speech? No, you're bearing false witness. you're not doing it to edify or build up another person. You're doing it to tear them down. And listening to gossip is just as sinful as gossip itself. You ever thought about that? Listen to what Thomas Watson says. Thomas Watson said this, He that raises a slander carries the devil in his tongue. He that receives it carries the devil in his ear. How should you handle gossip if somebody comes to you with gossip? What should you do? Stop. Stop right there. I don't want to hear any more about this. If you have an issue with that person or you have something with that person, you go dr- talk directly to that person. But I don't want to be a part of gossip. I don't want to hear this. Please let's respect the other person. That's hard to do, isn't it? Because what's our first temptation? Tell me the juice. Tell me, the, tell me the dirt. I want, I want the dirt on that person. If somebody comes to you with gossip, your first response should be, stop, I don't want to hear it. That's between you and them, and I don't want to hear it. I don't, I don't appreciate being gossiped. I know you don't appreciate being gossiped about. Let's not talk about this person behind their back. I refuse to be a part of gossip. Okay. Proverbs 18.8. The words of a whisper are like delicious morsels, They go down into the inner parts of the body. We like gossip, don't we? He's saying, man, when somebody comes with a juicy gossip, you want to take it in like it's really good candy. Proverbs 20, verse 19. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with the simple babbler. Don't even associate with the gossip. So here's the question. How do you handle gossip and slander against you personally? I'm not going to ask you to tell a story, but just maybe by a show of hands, how many of you have ever been gossiped or slandered against? Somebody said something. I mean, a lot of you are raising your hand. Somebody said something that was untrue about you. Somebody gossiped about you. Somebody spread lies about you. How do you respond to that? Okay. Here's number one. This is difficult. You address the person directly. That's hard, but you got to go to that person directly. Now, let's go to Matthew because Jesus tells us how to do this. Matthew 18, 15-17. Matthew 18, 15-17. If somebody is gossiping against you, if somebody slanders you, if somebody says something untrue about you, you need to go directly to that person and address the issue. Jesus actually gives you permission and tells you to do that. So Matthew 18 verse 15 and 7 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidences of what two or three Witnesses, There's that two or three witnesses thing there again. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. What's the first step in this whole situation? If your brother sins against you, what are you supposed to do? You go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. So let's play this out. Somebody slanders, let's, let's just play. I'll just play me, okay? Somebody slanders me. Somebody gossips against me. Somebody's lying about me. I have a responsibility to go directly to that person by myself and say, Listen, you've gossiped about me. You've slandered me. What's the deal? Why'd you do it? Did you do it? This is what I'm hearing. Now, at that point, what can they do? They can deny it and say, I didn't do it. What are you talking about? Or they can repent and say, you know what? I did, and I'm sorry, and I ask you for forgiveness. it won't happen again. And what does it say? If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Well, let's say he, says, let's say he denies it and says, you know what? I didn't do it, and, and I never gossiped about you, and you, and you. How dare you come and get in my face and talk to me about this? What do you do next? You go find two or three witnesses that have witnessed it. And you go to so-and-so and and say, hey, guys, I've been hearing from you, and you've been seeing that so-and-so has been gossiping about me. I went and addressed him, and he denied it, and he flat-out denied it. But I'm hearing this. Would you be willing to go with me to establish two or three witnesses so we can go talk to him? So I take these two with me, and we go talk to the guy. Listen, I'm here again to talk to you. The first time I met with you, you denied it. You got in my face. You got mad. Now I'm bringing two witnesses who saw you do it, who said you did it. Did you do it? And what's the deal? What happens if he denies it even in front of the two witnesses? At that point, you bring it before the entire church. And he's got to confess it in front of everybody. So, I mean, that's, that's a church discipline issue that we can talk about. That's a different discussion. But really, the first thing that needs to happen, if somebody, sin, any sin, if anybody sins against you, you have the responsibility to go to them and address it. What's the problem that most Christians do? Most Christians don't like confrontation. So what are you going to do? You're going to let it pass. You're not going to go confront that person. You're going to hope it goes away. You're going to get bitter. You might be tempted to go gossip with other people and get people on your side. Think about that. They gossiped about you. What are you tempted to go do? Go find people in your corner that you can gossip about them so that you can get a a hearing. We do not like confrontation, do we? One of my jobs as pastor, when somebody comes to me and says, "Ah, have you gone and talked to that person? Well, no. You need to go talk to that person. Well, I can't do that. You need to go talk to that person. I will go with you. I'll be a mediator. There's been times I've had to be a mediator between two church members that I forced to talk to each other because they wouldn't talk to each other because Christians aren't good at that. Most of us are flight or fright. I mean, we, we don't want to deal with confrontation. We don't want to do it. We'd rather just shut down and, and, and let somebody else deal with it or just go gossip. So number one, address the person directly. Number two, if someone's gossiped against you, evaluate if there's any truth to their accusations. Are they true? Do you have blind spots? Are they saying things that are halfway true? They may not be hitting the bullseye on the target, but they may be close. Now, let's read a story that's an interesting story. Do you remember the story of David and Shimei? If you were here Sunday night at the Reformation party, that was one of the Bible trivia questions. But turn to 2 Samuel 16. David, all right, let me give you some background here. Okay, so we've been looking at David kind of in a roundabout way the past few weeks. Remember David committed adultery with Bathsheba, had um, her husband Uriah killed. Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, you're the man. And then Nathan gives a prophecy. He says, you're going to have warfare in your house. You're going to have warfare in your house till the day you die, David. Well, David does. His son Absalom basically takes over the kingdom. And so David is forced to flee from Jerusalem. So he takes his family, and he leaves. And as they're leaving Jerusalem, this cranky old man who's a relative of King Saul shows up named Shimei. So let's pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5-14. through And this is kind of an interesting story that maybe you don't remember. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this degdod curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Nice bodyguard. David's bodyguard, Abishai says, David, are you going to put up with this guy? He's throwing rocks at you and cussing you out. Let me just go take his head off. What does David say in verse 10? But the king said, what have I to do with you, you son of Zeruiah? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there they refreshed himself. So here's the story. Shimei is up there throwing rocks at the king, cussing him out, saying, get out of here. You deserve to have your kingdom taken away from me. You're a man of blood. You're a man of lawlessness. I'm from the family of Saul. You're an evil man, King David. And Abishai, David's bodyguard, says, let's just go deal with this now. You don't need to be taking this, you don't need to be taking this type of offense. Let's go cut off his head. And David says, wait a minute. He may be cursing me for a reason. There may be some truth to what he's saying. There may be something that I did that's wrong. The Lord could have sent him, so let him do it. There may be some truth to what he said. And so he keeps throwing rocks down there and he's flinging dust. And so the question you have to have is, why does David not retaliate and silence this man, Shimei? Why does he let him keep cursing him? Well, in verses 11 and 12, David thinks that maybe this guy's right in actually cursing him. Maybe he does deserve it. Maybe this is from God who sent Shimei to shame David. David is going to consign himself to God's will and accept whatever comes his way as discipline. Because after all, David still realizes what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. And so he's still being humble. So the question you've got to ask, if somebody is being gossiping against you, the question you've got to ask is, hmm do you have any unrepentant sin or have you legitimately wronged another person? If you're innocent and you know you're innocent, then you go address the person. If there's some truth to what they're saying, you may need to eat crow and evaluate. They may actually... The gossip's not right, but what they're saying about you may be right. You understand what I'm saying? They they don't have a right to go spread it around to other people But what you did may be sinful, okay? Okay, number three. Let's say that you've tried everything. If the accusations are false and you've gone and addressed them and they're still not backing down, rest in a clear conscience in God's vindication. That's all you can do. if, If you're in the right and they're continuing to do this and you can't stop them, at the end of the day, you're going to have to rest in God's sovereignty. You're going to have to rest in a clear conscience that one day God will vindicate, will vindicate you. And we see this in Romans chapter 12, um, 18 through 21. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As possible, <laughs> live peaceably if it's possible. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't take revenge. Don't go gossip about them. Just say, you know what, Lord? You're going to have to fight this battle because I'm innocent. I've got a clear conscience. I've done everything in my power. At the end of the day, I have to rest in your sovereignty and that you're going to take care of this. Now, That may be a hard thing to do, Right? Because what's your natural tendency? I've got to get even, or I've got to fight back. And usually when you end up fighting back or getting even, you're just committing the same sin they've committed against you. (laughs) Because you're probably going off and finding people to gossip or slander or whatever. But number four, if this has never happened to you, be thankful that God's preserved you from being a victim of gossip and slander. Praise God. You know what? It's never happened to me, and it may But to this time in my life, it hasn't, so I'm thankful. I want to thank the Lord that that's not happened. Okay. Let's look at another biblical example of a liar. Jezebel, all right? Don't ever name your daughter Jezebel, okay? So 1 Kings 21. That should be a song. Don't ever name your daughter Jezebel. If you do, she's going to go to hell. No, I'm sorry. I don't know where that came from. So. in the weird recesses of Sean's mind. That's what happens when pastors don't have enough to have too much time on their hands. Really. All right, so this is Naboth's vineyard. So just to let you guys know kind of history of Israel, after King David, um, his son Solomon built the temple. After Solomon's death, there's Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The, the, the kingdom splits into two. So there's civil war in Israel. There's northern kingdom. There's southern kingdom. For the most part almost all the kings of the north are wicked. Few kings from the south are okay. So Ahab is one of the kings, and he's probably one of the worst kings in Israel, Ahab. And he has a wicked wife, Jezebel. And so there's a man named Naboth, and he's got a vineyard right next to the king's property. And the king, thinking he's the king, I want that, that should be mine. So we'll pick up in chapter 21 and find out about Naboth's vineyard. So here we go. Now, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house, and I will give you a better garden for it. If it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. Okay, so what's... The king says, Hey, listen, I'm the king. And I, your, your vineyard's right next to my palace. I, it's a great place for me to plant a vegetable garden. Give it to me. What's it to you? I'm the king. Well, does Naboth say, sure, king. What does he say? Verse 3, Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. What does Naboth say? Land's very important in Israel. That's all they had was land. This is my livelihood. This is my land. Even if I sell it to you, I would be giving up my inheritance. I'd be giving up my family name. I'd have nothing to pass on to my family. This is my livelihood. This is my life. This is my identity. There's no way I'm going to sell this to you because the Lord has given this to me. It's my land. It's the, the Lord's blessed me with this land. So no, king, you're not going to get it. What does the king do? He's a nice, wimpy little guy. Verse 4, And Ahab went to his house vexed and sullen because of what Nahab Moth the Jezreelite said to him. He kind of went home a little mad and upset and sulking and kind of wimping around the house. I don't like this. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and he would eat no food. Oh, poor King Ahab. His wife doesn't like it. Verse 5, Jezebel's wife came in to him and said, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? Why are you acting like a wimp? Why are you acting this way? You're the king. Get up off your duff and do something about it. And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel's wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? You're the king, dude. Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. I'm going to take care of this. So what does she do? She wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with the seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the table and set two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring a charge against him, saying, You've cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the table. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth, curse God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. They sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned, he's dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Okay. What's the plan here? Jezebel actually takes over the role of the king. She says, listen, if you're not going to act like king, I'll act like the king. So I'm going to forge some letters, and I'm going to send these letters to the leaders of of Naboth's town, and we're going to have a festival. We're going to have a a ceremony here, and I'm going to get two worthless fellows to bring false witness. So she hires two worthless fellows. Sons of Belial is literally the word sons of Belial, that same word worthless or Belial, Proverbs 19.28, a worthless witness mocks at justice and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. These are worthless men who give a worthless witness, Belial. Paul actually calls Satan himself Belial in 2 Corinthians 6.15. What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? It really means two utter reprobates that were worthless, that were wicked, that were going to give false testimony. Now, why does she have to hire two and not just one? What was the law in Israel? You need to have two witnesses to bring an accusation against someone. So here's the way it played out. They sit across from Naboth and they, these worthless fellows are waiting for the right time and they stand up at the dinner table and say, we've got a charge against Naboth. We've got two charges. Number one, he's blasphemed God and he's blasphemed the king. Those are the two worst charges you could have in Israel because blaspheme against God was punishment by stoning and blasphemy against the king was treason. Now, what happens if you have two witnesses? You're, it's pretty close to what's going to happen. So the elders of the town believe it, and what do they do? He must have done it. So they go out, and they stone an innocent man who was set up by Jezebel, all because her husband wanted the vineyard. He was he was acting like a wimp and not really taking it, which he shouldn't have in the first place. She manipulates the situation. She lies. She sends two witnesses in to lie in a... In a, in a um, innocent man gets killed leviticus 24 14 bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him that's what had to happen now after they stone him obviously ahab's not there but what does jezebel do she goes to ahab and says listen honey for some strange um, twist of fate just as luck would have it, Naboth happened to die and now the vineyard's yours. Tragically, the text does not tell us that Ahab cared enough to know how Naboth died or how he suddenly got so lucky to receive this vineyard. Now, you may think, Ugh, I don't like this story. Those are two wicked people. Well, the story ends well because, (laughs) let's keep reading, verse 17. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab, you're going to die by dogs licking you up. What happened to Ahab and Jezebel because of their treachery? Because of Elijah's prophecy? Well, go to 1 Kings 22, 37 through 38. 1 Kings 22, 37 through 38. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that that he had spoken. How did he die? He was left out and exposed for the dogs to come and lick up the dead king. How does Jezebel die? 2 Kings nine thirty through 37 So go into 2 Kings chapter 9. This is a few years later. Okay, so 2 Kings chapter 9, 30-37. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace? You, Zimri, murder of, of, of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who's on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman, and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him he said this is the word of the lord which was spoken by the servant Elisha the tishbite in the territory of jezreel the dog shall eat the flesh of jezebel and the corpse of jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of jezreel so that no one can say this is jezebel what happened to her they threw her out the window she splattered on the ground and the dogs came and devoured her flesh and they couldn't even recognize her You thought the Bible wasn't rated R, did you? (laughs) Okay, there's some some gross things there. But think about the treachery. When you think about Jezebel, okay, she lied, she manipulated, she hired two people to do that, to break the law in Israel, to, to, to bring charges that were untrue. The height of treachery. And then who's the victim in all this? Naboth. Who's going to be vindicated on the last day? Naboth. The Lord's going to vindicate Naboth. He won't just get his vineyard back, but he'll have heaven, the greater vineyard. Now, there is a difficulty in lying if you've read your Old Testament. You may ask, I've read some stories where people lied and got away with it. and It almost seemed like they were doing the right thing by lying. So how do we understand scriptures where a person lied and didn't get punished or reprimanded? I'm just going to give you two, two stories. So let's go to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. This is the Hebrew midwives in Egypt. Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom name was Shipra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So what happens? Pharaoh says, hey, when you're there and you see a baby boy give birth, kill it. Throw it in the Nile River. If it's a girl, let it live. Okay. What happens when the baby boys are being born? The midwives are like, we're not killing these kids. And Pharaoh comes and says, what's the deal? How come all these baby boys are being born? And they lie, don't they? What do they say to Pharaoh. These, these Hebrew women are pretty vigorous. I mean, like they had the baby before we can get there. And by the time they had the baby, it's like, you know, it's, we just can't handle it. And so the Lord said the midwives did the right thing by lying to Pharaoh. So it seems like God rewarded the lies of the midwives. Okay. Hold that in your mind. Let's go to Joshua. Rahab. When Rahab hid the spies, Joshua chapter 2. I know I'm having you guys jump all over the place, but it's good to have Bible drill. Find out where these things are in your Bible. So, so Josh, you remember the story of the spies? Moses sent the spies in, two guys to spy out Jericho. I mean, jo- Joshua did. Um, and they come into this house of a prostitute, Rahab, and she hides them. Uh, let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 4. But the women, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So she hides these spies in the roof, in the flax. The authorities come and say, Hey, we know you hid these spies. Where are they? She's like, oh, they ran off. They went that way. So Rahab lies, and then she's not reprimanded. Look at verse 25. I'm sorry, go go to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 17. And the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. She's blessed for, for hiding the spies. Okay. How do we deal with this ethically? In these passages of Scripture, sometimes God does not give a commentary on their actions, but simply reports what happens. Yet, in almost all cases, the lying was against an enemy of Israel, not a neighbor. What does the ninth commandment tell us? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Doesn't say anything about an enemy. Now that's a loophole you can think about. I'm not sure if it's a good loophole. The one thing that you have to remember is, in these passages which seem to justify deception, all have to do with justice against the wicked, especially an enemy of one who seeks to destroy or kill innocent life. What was the deal with the Hebrew midwives? What was Pharaoh asking them to do? Go against conscience and kill newborn babies. Okay, So you weigh those two. What's worse, killing a baby or lying to an enemy? Killing the baby. Okay, Hiding the spies so that God could fulfill his plan in Jericho, the killing of two guys in there, Or telling them we're, you know, or her hiding it and covering it up. So you've got these situations that you've got to deal with. The issue for us, maybe, is do we have an obligation to tell the truth to people who seek to kill innocent life? These are like hypothetical things that probably won't ever happen to us. But. I want to give you an example during World War II. Remember the hiding place? What did, did Cory ten Boom do? They hid Jews in the, when the Gestapo came by. And so they lied to the Gestapo to save the Jews. So well, the thing that I see you pointed out here, yeah. you didn't say it quite that way. Okay. Mm -hmm. it was for justice. Right. Whereas, in the case of Jezebel, it was for selfish gain. Exactly. Rahab, and
1: um, Um, she wasn't
0: doing it for selfish gain, she was doing it, I mean, it was probably self-preservation. Well, well, and actually, what's even more amazing is in Hebrews chapter 11, she's in the hall of faith, and she's commended for doing this as an act of faith. Um, And so I think you're right, Michelle, that, one one is selfish, self-preservation, doing it for selfish reasons. One is doing it for justice against the, wanting to take innocent life, and so that's that's a good, that's a really good distinction to make. Okay, so let's just look at some warnings that the Bible gives about falsehood and lying. In case we haven't had enough tonight, <laughs> Psalm fifteen two through three. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, he who does not slander with his tongue and does not evil to his brother nor take up a reproach against his friend. Slander speaks truth, does not take up a reproach. Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew twenty-three, twenty-seven through 28 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here's one thing about lying. Are there times when you lie that nobody else knows about? it? Can you be deceitful without ever being caught? Can you be deceitful in your heart? Can you be deceitful in a way that... You may not outright tell a lie, but you may be deceitful or manipulative in your actions. Maybe you exaggerate some things. Um, That's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. You look really good on the outside, but on the inside, you're a hypocrite. All right. Uh, Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Man, man. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So basically, watch yourself. Make sure that you uh, aren't tempted. And then Revelation says something very interesting about who's not going to be in heaven. Revelation 22, 14, and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so they might have the right to... The tree of life, and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immortal and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, does that mean if you tell a white lie, you're going to hell? No. What that's saying is that if you live in unrepentant sin and you've never trusted Christ for salvation and had those sins forgiven through Jesus, you will not enter heaven. And there's a list of all different types of sins there. Now, I want to shift gears. We've talked negatively tonight. Negatively, don't lie, don't cheat, don't don't steal, don't don't I want to talk about being how can we use our mouths as witnesses? What well, have we talked about? Two or three witnesses. Are you a witness? One of the most powerful ways we can tell the truth positively is by declaring God's gospel as faithful witnesses. Luke 24, 46-49. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You're witnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, disciples. So wait for the Holy Spirit and then go out and declare this gospel. Preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Well, what happens in Acts 1.8? Jesus says but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We are called to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to Jesus Christ to the world. That's a positive way we can speak the truth. It's by speaking the gospel with boldness. In Acts 4.31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Paul prayed for boldness, which always kind of floors me that Paul had to pray for boldness. I think of like the most bold person. Um, um, I, had a, I, had a, I had a period of boldness on Sunday afternoon that, that I think the Lord just gave me... Um, I'll just give this a side note here. Um, I had, the cult showed up at my doorstep on Sunday afternoon, about one o'clock, three of them. In about a half an hour, I talked with them about what they believed and, They talked to me about the mother God and they talked to me about having to keep the Sabbath. And they talked to me about all these different things that had to happen and this and that. And they were showing, they had their Bible and they were showing me stuff. And I'm like, go back to this passage of scripture. And I was trying to tell them that you guys have a very wrong view of the Trinity. Actually, you're you're heretics, um, what you believe, this and that. And then um, blah, blah, blah. And finally, um, I said, you know, we can talk about like sabbath and all these things but let me ask you guys a question how is a person saved how does a person have a right relationship with god okay this was reformation sunday i just preached a sermon on grace alone faith alone and christ alone okay you know what came out of their mouth you probably think it's by grace alone through faith alone (laughs) well yes i do (laughs) and so they went on to try to explain to me that it was by works and this and that and all these things you got to do and i had to try to teach them greek and this and everything and finally i stopped and said you know what I said, what you're teaching is a damnable heresy. You've got God wrong and you've got the gospel wrong. And you're teaching people something that's going to send them straight to hell. And you're going to go straight to hell if you do not repent. And so I said, it's like tying a millstone around a person's neck and taking them to the bottom of the sea. I said, every door that you go to, you are telling people how to get to hell. And we've been praying against you. And he was like, well, we've been praying for you too. I said, no, you didn't hear me. We've been praying against you, that you would fail, that you would fall flat on your face, that you would not be deceived, and that you would leave Sterling. I said, you are going to stand before God on the day of judgment and be held accountable for the heresy that you're teaching. James 3.1 says not many of you should assume to be teachers, and you're going from door to door teaching people a false doctrine. And I want you, as you go from house to house, to think about the accountability that's on your soul that you will be held accountable and what you're teaching people sends them straight to hell. Have a nice day. See you later. I mean, I, I mean, that was basically the end of the conversation. But I wouldn't recommend you do that unless you get an extra measure of boldness from the Lord during those moments. Um, but sometimes people in false teachings have got to be rebuked. Um, I'm not saying you guys have to do that. Probably the best thing for you is just to say, get out of here. I don't want to deal with you anymore. Um, I felt like God had set that up as a divine appointment. I've been waiting a year and a half for them to show up at my door, and they finally did. So I was excited. I was having fun. I'm like, let's let this go on all afternoon. But I knew Dawn had to take a nap. So, and she was like sitting there at the window. And um, and, I, and, I could t- and their answer, they kept backing up, well, God can do whatever he wants. God can do whatever he wants. I'm like, and then, oh, one thing he said to me, he's like, you're, haven't we used the Bible to explain everything? And I said, you're using the Bible the same way Satan uses the Bible. He twists God's word. And you come to it with some assumptions and a lot of falsehoods. Satan uses the Bible, and you're using it. So, I mean, I'm sure I offended them. I mean, I said pretty much every one upside down the other. I I told them. I mean, I felt like that they needed to be rebuked because they and I, I, they're deceived. That's the sad thing about it. They're deceived. They're zealous. They're believing a false doctrine. And if if somebody doesn't get in their face and say what you're teaching is, is is hellish. Who's going to do it? So anyway, boldness. Paul prays for boldness. Let's get back to Ephesians 6, 18 to 20. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, pray for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We're to speak the gospel boldly. Paul in Colossians chapter 4, it kind of says the same thing, but a little different twist. Colossians 4, 3 through 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare pro- to the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in a prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So here he prays for clarity. Pray for boldness. I want to present the gospel with boldness. I want to present the gospel with clarity. That's you individually. Sharing the gospel with boldness, sharing it with clarity, being a witness. But as the church, corporately, as the body, as the group of believers, as the assembly of the saints, we are also called to be a witness. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here's the bottom line tonight. As those who've been saved by grace alone, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak the truth in love. We should avoid any types of falsehoods, lies, exaggerations, gossip, and slander as these do not reflect how we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. One of the greatest ways that we can be people of truth is to boldly, clearly, and faithfully proclaim the gospel. And I want to leave you with Jesus' words in John 8, 30-32. What did he say? As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth will set you free.